Well, if you have a Bible, we're heading back to 2 Peter 1. We're going to talk about the promises again. 2 Peter chapter 1. So today it's titled, The Promises of God Are Experienced by Faith or Through Faith. So looking again at 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he writes, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And Father, once again, I just ask that you'll open our eyes and our understanding, give us ears to hear, uh, Lord, and that we can help us to understand what it means to trust you fully according to your promises. And we ask that in Jesus' name. All right. In verse four, we talked about this last time that Peter calls the promises that are given to us. He doesn't just say promises. He says they're exceedingly great and precious, not just great, but exceedingly great. Now, we don't talk that way. I mean, if I asked you if you went to the Grand Canyon and how'd you like it, you wouldn't say it was exceedingly great. I mean, they probably talked that way back in England. But if it was me, I'd be like, man, that was magnificent because I've seen it. It's extraordinary, breathtaking. That's how Peter is describing these promises of God. It's like you can't put it into words beyond what I can express is what he's saying. And he says they're exceedingly great. They're also precious, highly valued. They're to be treasured, uh, prized. When something is precious to us, what does that mean? We're talking about things that are rare, loved, and highly valued. And I would say, I would hope that's your children. That's the way I feel about my children. Each one's precious. You know, even if you have seven of them, they're still, in a sense, rare. It's not like you got 300 of them or more to come. He's saying they're precious and exceedingly great. So why is that? Why is he saying that, that the promises of God are so extraordinary and valuable? And the reason is, is because it's God's way, and it's all through the Bible, from Genesis clear to Revelation, they're filled with promises that tell us what our inheritance is. It tells us through those promises what God has given us and what he will do for us, both now in the present and also in the future. And Peter tells us right here, not only that, he says it's through these exceedingly great and precious promises. The greatest thing of all is he says we are partakers. We fellowship with the divine nature. And that's incredible thinking what we were before we got saved, that we're able to fellowship with the divine nature. Do we really think about that? Is that part of your thinking that you have this great inheritance, an inheritance that's yours? So, you know, one of the Rothschilds died at one time. And in case you don't know, you're young, you don't know who the Rothschilds are, this would kind of explain it. So their net worth in 2018 is $400 billion. So I would say they've got their rent paid for August, the Rothschilds. But anyways, one of them died one time and outside the house this poor Jewish man stood and he was sobbing and just weeping like his heart was breaking and one of the servants in the house took pity on the guy and they came out and they're like why are you so upset why are you crying like that you're not a relative and he gave a quick answer and he said that's why I'm crying (laughs) that's why I'm crying 
<laughs> but listen, the Bible clearly teaches us that all of us, every Christian has a rich relative that has died and has left us an inestimable fortune. We're heirs to a kingdom. And so guess what? We don't have to weep, do we? We're not paupers. We're not poor. So, you know, Herod, he promised the daughter of his illicit wife, Herodias. He says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. That's what he said. But God says, I'm not going to just give you all half the kingdom. He's saying you can have the whole thing. He's not miserly like Herod was. And here's some of the promises we have for that. Matthew 25, 34. Jesus says, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the words you'll hear if we make it to the end. And you stand before the Lord and he's not one of those. He says, depart. He will says, welcome, inherit the kingdom. It's all yours. Matthew 5, 5 says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit what? The earth. Some people, they're like, man, if I just had a rich relative, I could be set. It'd take care of a lot of my problems. We have an inheritance that surpasses any earthly inheritance. Plus, not only that, but through our faith, God says he'll supply anything that we need, doesn't he? I mean, that's what he promises us, and he will do that. He says, take no thought. Didn't Jesus say that? Take no thought. He said, it is your father's good pleasure to give you what? The kingdom. And he's talking about meeting your needs here and now. So God will more than meet our needs and bless us. He's our heavenly father. Revelation 21, 7 says this. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And not only that, God adds to that. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. <coughs> now, if that's not an incentive to live the overcoming life, there's something wrong with us, isn't it? Something wrong with this. We're not really listening to what he's promising us. To him who overcomes, he shall inherit all things. The world's passing away. Isn't that what John tells us? And the lust thereof. This world is passing away. This is not where we want our inheritance to be, is it? It, it isn't. And he's saying, he that overcomes, we may have a, some tough times. We may have some trials. But he says, he that overcomes shall inherit all things. And not only that, I will be his God. The wicked have none of that for all eternity. They don't get to enjoy God's presence like the saints do. So Lazarus might have had it bad, didn't he? Laying at that gate with those sores and the dog licking his sores. The dog's licking his sores. But he had, he gained his inheritance, didn't he? In the presence of God forever. Truly blessed. We said it last week, we don't have to wait for the quote-unquote sweet by and by to enjoy our inheritance. Some things we do have to wait for, don't we? I mean, we have to wait for our glorified bodies. We have to wait for those. We have to wait for the new heavens and the new earth. We have to wait to see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. But that will happen, won't it? It will happen. That's a promise to us. But we have to wait on that. But there is, like I said last week, a great part of our inheritance that we can enjoy now. So if you would turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of what? Of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness and he's conveyed us or translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins. The question is, where do I go to claim my inheritance? Where do I go to claim it? That's the question. And Paul says, it's found where? He tells us here. He says, your inheritance is found in the light. So he tells us here, there's two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. And our inheritance is in the kingdom of light. And if you're a Christian, he's also telling us here, we don't have to wait to enter that kingdom. He's saying God has, it's put in the past tense. He has translated us, pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness and has put us in the kingdom of light. How does that happen? It's because we were locked in that kingdom of darkness until a ransom was paid. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us that right here in whom we have redemption. It says through his blood and our sins were weighing heavy on us and they were blocking us between us and our inheritance. But they've been wiped out. They've been covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The price has been paid for that. Now we're there. It's already happened. So we were in the dominion. That's what he says. He has delivered us from, verse 13, the power. That word power there means the authority, the dominion. We were under the dominion of darkness before. And that means sin, sickness, misery, depression, spirits that would oppress your life and your family. All the misery that you see in the world, that's where we were chained and locked. But he's telling us here, we have been, the promise is, we have been set free. That's our inheritance now. It's been given to us. Amen? That's what we need. So with that, if you would turn back to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26 and beginning in verse 17. Luke writes it about Paul. Jesus says this to Paul. He says, I will deliver you, Paul, from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And here's the purpose, verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from what? The power of Satan to the power of God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And there it is again. And an inheritance. There is that inheritance among those who are sanctified in me. So God opens our eyes. And when he does that, we understand something. Well, one thing we understand, we see is, and because people in the world don't realize this, they don't really understand the power they are under. It's telling us here, Satan, and we read before, there's dominion. Darkness has dominion, authority. There is a real power, we know that, with the devil. But people don't know that until the gospel comes. Then your eyes are opened and you see, these are the chains he has had me in all of these years. I can't get rid of my sin. I have to be sick like everyone else. I have to have mental problems. You name it. You name the problem that you have. Things aren't going to go right in my life. I feel miserable. I feel guilty. And he's saying that's a power the devil has over you. And Paul and the gospel come and says, I'm going to open your eyes to see something, that there is that power, that power of Satan, but I'm going to turn you from that and turn you to the power of God. And that is where your inheritance is found. Because that's what Peter said back in that second Peter one, that through his power, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's an inheritance we have and the power of God. We need to see that there is a real power of God. We have no trouble believing in the power of the devil. We see it at work everywhere. Right. But we have to trust that there is a true power, supernatural power of God working on our behalf. And it can overcome anything that the power of darkness and Satan 
throws at us and we can receive our inheritance now a lot of it can't we we can receive the land just as israel didn't they have to fight for their inheritance by faith we have to do the same thing you don't have to turn to this but in joshua 1 this is what the lord told joshua joshua 1 3 he says every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon he didn't tell them i will give it to you he says i have already given it to you everywhere you go this may be the first time you've stood on there, but I have already given it to you. This is your inheritance. This is what he says, I've given you. And he says, no man, or we could say no demon, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And God promises Joshua and Israel and us, he says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. So because of that, he says, be strong and of good courage. He says, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And so God gave Israel, which we learn from what happened to them, right? He gave them an inheritance. How did it come to them? Through promises, right? They were promised. You go and do this. If they didn't believe those promises and just stayed on the other side of the Jordan, how much of their inheritance would they have gotten? Nothing. So I'm saying that's my point I'm trying to make is the inheritance comes to us through the promises. And then they had to believe them, believe what God said. They had to cross the Jordan. They had to go into that land and they had to fight. They had to fight circumstances that were far overwhelming to them and their children, putting their lives at risk. They had to trust in the promises and more importantly, the God that made them those promises. But they had to fight. And we have to fight for our inheritance, too, by faith, just like them. And it's a bloody contest. Matthew eleven twelve says this. Jesus said from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent, it just comes to them. It just, it's just dropped in their lap. Is that what it says? It says the violent have to take it by faith force or you could say by faith and i'll say i've read this several times by several different godly men but christianity it's not for the weak it's not for the lazy it's not for the indifferent and it's not for the careless and those are the spirits that are taking over this age weak lazy indifferent careless seems to be the modus operandi i'm saying christianity that's not going to work that's not going to work to inherit the promises of God. It's going to be warfare. Our inheritance comes to us through the exercise of faith and the promises that God has given us. Hebrews 6 says that. He writes this in Hebrews 6, 11 to 12. He says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. There has to be a diligence about this to the full assurance, being fully persuaded of the expectation that God has given us until the end. And he says this, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, there it is right there. It says you can't be sluggish. That word means lazy. Don't be that way. You'll not get a thing. He says you've got to be diligent. You've got to be imitators or followers of those who through their faith, and through their endurance, inherited something. They in, got their inheritance. They inherited the promises. And that's what they did. So we're clearly told that it's through faith that we possess the promises. That's nothing new here, is it? 
We've heard that for a long time. And God in his grace has given us the perfect illustration of how faith inherits a promise in the story of the life of Abraham. If you would, we'll spend most of the rest of the time. Turn to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, but the context of this is he wants us to understand that we're not made right with him. We don't gain anything from God by our good works or obeying the law, but strictly through trusting in the promise by our faith. And that's what he has. Look in the first four verses. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works. Well, then he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So he's saying there, everything Abraham inherited, he didn't work for it. He believed God. That's how he got everything he had. And that's the same way with us. Everything we get from the Lord. And so look here at the end of that. Look in verses 23 to 24. And he's writing this whole chapter. Look why he says, he says in verse 23, Now, what I've written now, it was not written for his sake, not for Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him. But he says what? But also for us. He wants us to understand how we can be accounted righteous apart from works. But he's also, through that, going to tell us this is how faith operates. He's the father of faith. And so the faith that Abraham had to use to gain his righteousness, to gain the seed, the promise, that same faith and all of those principles, they will operate for any promise that we're trying to get from God, won't they? I had a guy one time that left here and he's like, you know, we've been hearing all these verses and they're taken out of context. God wasn't talking about it. I'm like, look, the principles are there, though, and they're valid for any promise. Yeah. It's ridiculous to say something like that. And that's what we get here. He tells us how faith works for Abraham. That's what we're going to learn about today. There's five principles here in Romans 4 that we want to go through. We're not going to get through them all today, but there's five of them. And the first principle what we want to see about faith is that the faith God gave Abraham, the faith that he was given is what enabled him to believe what appeared to be an outlandish promise. Ridiculous, outlandish, really what God promised him in the natural. And what was that promise? That We all know it, that a man nearing 100 years old who's got a wife that is over 90 with no children, the promise was that this man... He's got no children. He's 100 years old. His wife's over 90. That this man is going to be the father of many nations. And so God spoke that word of promise. It's found if you look down in verse 18 of chapter 4. And it says this. It says, who contrary to hope and hope believes so that he became. It happened. It's a fact. He became the father of many nations according to what was spoken or what was promised. So shall your descendants B. So the way that works is back in Genesis 15, God had told then Abram, he wasn't Abraham yet, that he was his great reward. God says, I'm your great reward. Well, he had told him, you go to this land and your descendants will inherit. He told him that back in Genesis 12. But God tells him in Genesis 15, Abraham, I am your great reward. And Abraham says to the Lord, um, this wasn't disrespectful, but he's more or less saying, what reward? I don't have any children. And you promised me that my descendants would inherit this land. I don't have any children at all. And this Eliezer, he's from Damascus. 
He didn't come for me. My slave, Eliezer, right now, he's the one that's going to inherit everything I have. What are you telling me, Lord? And that's what he's saying. And God said, no. He says, I'm going to tell you it's from your body. That's literally what he says. It's from your body that this heir is going to come. And he tells Abraham, he goes, just step outside and look up. And he says, this is what the Bible says. He says, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. That's the promise we just read in verse 18 of chapter 4. And it says, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now listen, nobody in their natural right mind would believe what God told Abraham. The only person that could believe what God told Abraham was someone that was given faith through grace. And we have to understand that the faith we exercise, that the faith we exercise is not something that we are born with. It is not. It's not something that we're born with. Because Ephesians 2.8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And what does it say next? That not of yourselves. You didn't have it. I didn't have it. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith to believe his promises is a gift. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The faith we have in any of God's promises, if we're able to truly exercise faith and see a manifestation of an answer, any time that happens, that faith we have is a gracious gift. So going back to what we read at the beginning of that text in Peter, 2 Peter, Peter says that we have obtained like precious faith. That word means to be, to receive it, to be given it. It was given that like, that precious faith because doesn't it say not all men have faith? They don't. And that's what it says. That faith is what we use to obtain those exceeding great and precious promises. The great confession of faith, Matthew 16, that Peter made. Because everybody's seeing Jesus. They're all hearing the same words that Peter's hearing. They're seeing the works that Jesus is doing. But something's different about with Peter, right? And when they ask, who do you say they are? Well, some men say this. Other men say that. But Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus didn't be like, well, man, I'm glad you finally figured it all out. It's about time. He didn't say that. What did he tell him? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, including his own, has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. True faith is always produced by a revelation that is given by the grace of God. It is. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. They don't have any faith, the wise and prudent. But he says, you have revealed them to babes. Here's the point I'm trying to make with this is any faith we exercise that causes God to answer prayer. We have nothing to boast of. It wasn't something that emanated from us. It's something that God gave us and sustained us in our believing. Nothing to be proud of. Isn't that what Ephesians 2, 8 said? Yeah, For by grace have you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's what? It's a gift of God. Why? Not of works, even your belief. Lest any man should boast even of his great faith. I was just born with a natural ability to trust God. No, you weren't. 
You need to go back to the cross if you think that. If you're struggling with faith, you're struggling with trusting God, we need to not give up, but we need to go back and pray the prayer that Paul prayed that we've heard a million times in this church. But do we pray? It's the question. And that is that prayer out of Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Because the wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, when you can see him for who he is, that's where faith comes from. And he goes on to say that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know. Knowing means like you know that you're sitting in this building right now. A knowing that you may know what is the hope of his calling. The second thing is what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance again in the saints. And the last thing is, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? Because people that struggle with faith and holding on to a promise and all that, that's where they're struggling They don't see the greatness of his power towards you who believe. Because if you could see that, you could hold on. Any of us. Right? It really is the case. It's a revelation, Paul says, that we need. So let me ask you along that line. How did the blind man in John 9, how did that man, that blind man, exercise faith to receive his sight? Because after he was, was healed and they came to him and talked to him about it, He said this in verse 32. He says, well, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He said he'd never heard of that before. So how could he have faith in that? You ever ever wonder that? How was he able to do that? He was able, though, to believe what he knew was impossible. It never happened. Isn't that what we call things? That's never happened. It's impossible. Isn't that what we say? Say that all the time. Never heard of before. You know why? It's because by his grace, he was given faith. When that word came and he heard that word, it produced faith in his heart and he acted. He wouldn't have been healed otherwise. He believed that if he obeyed what the Lord Jesus Christ said, that he would see or it wouldn't have happened. What does it say of Noah? Noah, does it say Noah just had a little more common sense than the other three billion people they estimate were on the earth at that time? Or was Noah really our first meteorologist? He's able to look up and say, rain's coming. It's going to happen. I better build a boat. The first meteorologist. I mean, I'm being smart. But here's what happened. That's not what the Bible says. It says, the Lord saw how wicked men were. This is what it says. And he says, I will destroy man whom I have created From the face of the earth, he said, it repents me. I'm sorry. I see the state of this world. I'm sorry. I'm going to destroy it all. But it adds this at the very end of Genesis 6. It adds this. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, of all the three billion people, God lasered in on him. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what did that grace that he found enable him to? to do what did that grace do it gave him the faith that we read about in hebrews eleven seven. because it doesn't just say noah was smart enough or he had this inclination or this inkling i better build a boat is that what it says no it says by faith that's the where that grace was by faith noah being divinely warned of things not seen as yet moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his house. 
He gave that warning to everybody else and nobody else had the faith to believe it, did they? Because sometimes, hey, it can produce fear, doesn't it? Because you hear of a warning from God. That's what causes repentance. You hear this thing, the way you're living, you're a sinner, you're going to perish in hell. Well, when you believe those words, it produces fear, doesn't it? I better do something about this because I believe what God is saying. That's what happened to Nineveh. Yet 40 days in this city is going to be totally destroyed. They were able to, by the grace of God, believe that promise, weren't they? And they did what? They repented. And God had mercy, but that's what the grace of God did. They were able to believe it. So if you're still in Romans, look what it says in verse 16. It says, therefore, he's talking about the promise. It is of faith. Why? That it might be according to grace. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So he's designed his promises to be filled by faith because only his grace will enable anyone to be able to believe it. Because the unbelievers in the world, they scoff, don't they? They scoff at what other people can have faith in. So it's a gift. It's not given to everybody. Here's how it works. We know this, we've heard this before, faith comes how? Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. But it's more than that. Because a lot of people have heard the Word of God and have zero faith. That's just the way it is. So it's more than just hearing the words that produces faith. God's Spirit has to also be at work in a heart. The Word is heard through the anointing, that word is heard, God opens the heart and faith is produced supernaturally. You believe that? Amen. I believe it. Amen. And if you look over in Acts 14, it might help you believe it a little more. If you turn over to Acts chapter 14, and look what it says in Acts 14, verses 8 to 10. Acts 14, 8, it says, And in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Impossible. And it says, this man heard. So what was he hearing? Well, if you look up in verse 7, it says they were preaching the gospel there. So he's hearing the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is what he's hearing, which would include healing. It says in verse 9, this man heard Paul speaking. And Paul observing him, intently looking at him, seeing that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. So there was something that was produced in that man through the preaching, through the word, God supernaturally by his spirit produced a faith that Paul could see it on his face. Either God showed him or whatever, but this man had faith different than other people. And he says, that faith, I see that God has produced faith in you through the word. Isn't that what happened with Lydia in Acts 16? As Paul preached when they were by the river, it says God opened her heart that she could attend to the things Paul said. Yeah, and that's how faith was produced. So it's the word with the spirit of God opening your heart, anointing that word. That is how faith is given. Amen. It's not just strictly hearing the word, is it? And that's why we've got to get back to that prayer. Pray that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of revelation and understanding will open your eyes, open your heart that you can see this word will have an impact on you. You can see the power that is made available to you and then it'll work. Amen. It's not just looking at a, a bare promise. Anybody can intellectually read the Bible and say, well, yeah, it promises that he's my healer. That's not the same thing. 
It's not. Now, I'm just not talking Logos Rama either, believe me. So God opened his heart and his power. When that man heard that message of the gospel, it was all God. That was all God's grace. God opened his heart when Paul preached, produced that faith there supernaturally. And all he was doing was responding. Because when he responded, God's power met him and he was able to walk. It's like the man with the withered hand. He had that anointing and he had to believe the word that Jesus said. And so as he responded, all he did was do, stretch forth his hand, and God's power met him as he acted because of faith that was already there. He didn't act to be healed. He had faith in his heart that caused him to act. And God's power met him. Bam, he's restored. But it's the word and it's the anointing that produces faith in God opening your heart. So if you really desire to trust the Lord, and maybe you've missed it, but that's really your desire. Well, first thing I would say is faith still comes by reading the Word of God, doesn't it? And if you're not on a Bible reading plan, you need to be on one. If you only read just a little bit or you don't read your Bible at all, don't even try to exercise faith because it won't be there. It's not there. It comes through the Word of God and a relationship and a knowledge of God that only comes by reading your Bible understanding the word, fellowshipping with the Lord through prayer, knowing his presence is with you. Every person in Hebrews 11, they're not doing this on their own. They have a living relationship with the living God and they're hearing his voice speak to them a promise. That's how it works. You got to get on a Bible reading plan. And in doing that, as you read through the Bible, the entire thing, you start seeing Promise after promise after promise, whether negative or positive, that God is faithful. God is faithful here, 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 and here. And it starts producing faith. And the Lord will speak to you. And you'll gain a knowledge of Him. And then it'll work for you. But it's not going to work because you hear a message or you read by Jesus' stripes, I am healed, or you can quote that verse. That's not how it works. It's not that simple. So I would say you're struggling because things seem like they're beyond the realm of possibility. And look, I'm going through something and when things get this bad, they just don't work out. I'm saying you're struggling. And I'm saying we're back to the man with the epileptic son who cried out, Lord, I believe. He's saying, I want to believe, Lord. I know you can help me. I really want to believe that and help mine unbelief. And it said he cried out with tears. He is Desperate because here I'm saying again, only the Lord can give you faith. Isn't that what he's saying? Help mine unbelief. I need help. I'm struggling. I don't have it. And he will. So if you're struggling, the point is not give up, it's cry out to God and he will help you. He wants to help you. (laughs) He's got a way he answers prayers, it's through his spirit. And your faith, the blood of Jesus, that's how he answers prayers, supernaturally. That's how he wants to answer prayers. Psalm 119, 169, I like this psalm. It says, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. That's a good one. Psalm 119, 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Because what we need to see is we depend on God for everything. We are utter paupers in every sense of the word. Jesus says, without me, you can do 
nothing. And that includes the ability to trust him. So Philippians, it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That includes the exercise of faith. He has to be the one to do it. The second thing back in Romans chapter four, we want to see here. Second principle is that Abraham, all he needed was the word of God and nothing else. God didn't give Abraham when he gave him the promise. He didn't give him any signs. He just gave him his word. So shall your descendants be. And that was all Abraham needed. Because after he just gave him that word and that promise, after he looked up at those stars, it says, we quoted this earlier, we even read it back in verse 3 of chapter 4, that he believed in the Lord. And that's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. And it's interesting to look at that word in Genesis 15, 6, that Hebrew word for believed, it's a Hebrew word, aman. And it means, the verb means to confirm or to support. But the form of the verb, so Hebrew verbs, depending on their endings, they take, I'm not getting technical, but they take on different forms. The form of the verb as it's used there in Genesis 15, 6, makes it a declarative statement. And so when it says Abraham believed in the Lord, it means Abraham he was declaring God to be reliable. That's what he's saying. Abraham believed in I'm declaring you to be reliable. I'm regarding you as being dependable. That's what it's saying. Now, there's only one way you can make a statement declaring somebody reliable or dependable. And you have to know their character and their ability. Don't you? Before you can make any kind of statement about a person like that or believe their bare word, you have to know the person behind making that statement. So it says Abraham believed in the Lord. That means he believed in his person, his character, his reliability. He knew who God was. Thus, he could take that word that was given him. And look what it says in verse 17. Now, this is something that you can read right over. In verse 17 it says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Look what it says there after that. In the presence of him whom he believed. He stood in his presence. He's out there looking at the stars, but he is standing in the presence of God as that happens. And I believe Abraham was in God's presence many times. And what happens? You all should know this. What happens when you're in his presence, reading his word or praying? Have you, do you not have a clear understanding and revelation of who God is? And I think that's what this is telling us here. We need to be in his presence. That's what happened to Moses, wasn't it? In Exodus 33, he's in God's presence. He says, show me who you are. And God did. And that's why Moses was a step above everybody else, more than just a step. Because Abraham knew this about God, what it goes on to say there in verse 17, it says that he who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That God, he says, I'm willing to believe your bare word. And like I said, we know somebody well. There's some people I know. All they have to do is tell me they're going to do something. And I'm, that's it for me. I'm convinced they will unless they get shot before they get a chance to do it. So there's Gebhard von Blücher. He was the Prussian field commander in 1815. 73 years old, been through a lot of battles, been wounded many times. He promised that he would meet the Duke of Wellington to fight Napoleon at Waterloo. Everyone's heard about the famous battle of Waterloo. Well, right before that battle happened, 
von Blucher, he was wounded and he lay under his dead horse. He barely managed to live. Somehow they got him out from that horse. He revived and he took his troops on a torturous march through muddy paths to Waterloo. And he arrived there in the late afternoon and he was an instrumental part in the victory that took place there. So it was despite his age, he's 73 years old, his wounds and the effort it took him to ride on horseback there. Here's the thing I'm saying about this man. He was determined, this is the record of it, he was determined to keep his promise. Because his men said, it's impossible, it can't be done. We can't make it. They were struggling to get there. And he says, here's was his answer to them. He said, it must be done. I have promised to be there. Promise, do you hear? That's what he told him. He says, would you have me break my word? And he was at Waterloo according to his word because he'd given his promise. We admire people like that, don't we? You know somebody like that, their word is gold, right? They give you their word and you know it's going to happen. And Abraham had that kind of confidence in God. That's what we're told here. So he'd been walking with him for years before that promise came about his seed. And he had seen that God was more faithful than any man. And it says he believed in the Lord. He declared God reliable. He saw that God was the person who gives life to the dead and that calls those things which do not exist as though they did. He had a revelation of God, had a knowledge of him that all he needed based on that then, just give me a word, whatever you tell me, I'm ready to believe. Picture this, he's looking up at the stars outside and the God who created those stars out of nothing is telling Abraham, he's saying, look at those stars, they weren't there, I created them out of nothing. And he's saying, I'm telling you, the multitude of those stars that you're seeing I created out of nothing, I will do the same thing with you. Because you have nothing to give me, and I will create out of that a multitude of descendants for you. I give you my word. Isn't that what he's telling him? Isn't that what went on there? So listen, the foundation for faith in the promises of God are three things. You need to have three things. Truth, love, and power. Those three things. God, by his very nature, is true. We need to know that and believe that. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, he is the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. He is a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Our God is a God, a rock of truth. Psalm 119, 160 says, thy word is true from the beginning. And last week we gave Hebrews 6, 18 that it is impossible for God to lie. So whatever God has promised, we can depend that it's true. And we could go on and on and on with verses about that. The second thing is that God is love. His goodness and love is seen towards all creation, sends his reign on the just and the unjust, but especially towards his children. And Isaiah 49 says, can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, but God says, yet will I not forget thee. And this commentator Lockyer says this, he says, behind all of God's promises, there is the love beat of a father's heart seeking the highest and best for those he loves. It may be hard at times when tears and trials are ours to rest in his love. It may be hard to rest in his love when we're having trials and tears and to accept his promises of protection. Yet nevertheless, because he is all wise as well as all loving, he knows what is best for those he has promised to bless. 
So he's true. We can trust him. He loves us. He'll do what he says. And also power, his sovereign power ensures that every promise will be fulfilled. And Abraham didn't doubt that. He'd seen God's power at work. So look what it says in Romans 4, verses 20 to 21. Verse 20, And he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And verse 21, Being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. I said this some at the beginning, but we need to clearly see that if we are truly Christians, that we are trusting in the supernatural power of God to be in our lives from the beginning of our Christianity until the end. Because if you don't trust, you don't have faith in the supernatural power of God, you can't be saved. That's what you're exercising faith in, that you are supernaturally going to have your nature changed. That's no small miracle. And all of the promises of God can only be fulfilled supernaturally. Read Hebrews 11. Go back and read that. Every promise was fulfilled by people trusting in the supernatural power of God. In the Gospels, name me a healing or a deliverance that Jesus executed that wasn't done supernaturally. Think of one. There's not one. He never gave deliverance through medication. He said, if I, by the finger of God, by the Spirit of God, cast out spirits, leaving people in their right minds. Isn't that what he did? That's what the promise is. That's what the inheritance is. That's how it's obtained. By faith in the supernatural and all the gifts that are listed to the church in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 are supernatural. They're dependent on the Spirit of God and Him alone. That's what He's given to the church. God's true. He loves us. He's not going to withhold his goodness to his children. And the fact that he pledges his supernatural power to fulfill his word is the basis and the only basis for exercising faith in the promises. Let me say that again. God is true. His word is true. He loves us. He won't withhold his goodness to his children. And the fact that he pledges his supernatural power to fulfill his word is the basis and the only basis for exercising faith in the promise. The only way to obtain our inheritance. That's the foundation for trusting in the bare word of God. The Roman centurion, he saw all three of those characteristics in the Lord Jesus Christ. His truth, his love, and his power. He came to him on behalf of his servant. And it says that boy was sick and ready to die. He was ready for the emergency room. Sick and ready to die. But the centurion, he only asked for one thing, didn't he? He says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. He says, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. That's all that was needed, wasn't it? Isn't that what it says? Doesn't get any sicker than that. Sick and ready to die. Grievously tormented, it says in other Gospels. So he's saying, that's all I need from you, Jesus. I don't need a sign. I don't need a touch. All I need is a word only or alone. <laughs> that's all that's saying. And Jesus says that is great faith. Trusting in the bare word of God because of the God who stands behind it. The God of truth, love, and power. And when we have that revelation, his word 
is all we need. Amen? That's what it says. And the third principle that we need to see, it goes along with the second, it won't be that long, is we have to trust in the bare word of God when all hope seems gone. In Romans 4.18, it says, who contrary to hope, in hope believe, so that he became the father of many nations. That's what it says. Contrary to hope. Because here's the deal. We know this. There was nothing, absolutely nothing in Abraham's circumstances that would have given him any hope. Was there? There was zero in what he was looking at to give him any hope of his promises being fulfilled. Everything was against it because the facts were Abraham was 100 years old and dead to reproduction. That's what it says in verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. And it says Sarah's womb hadn't produced children for over 90 years. And the Bible says it was dead, too. So where's the glimmer of hope in all this death that there's going to be children? It's impossible according to the course of how life plays out. That's why people go and have these test tube babies where they, they don't trust God. It's like, no, that ain't going to happen. So how could Abraham believe that? It's because God had set a hope before him. He told him what he could expect despite what he was seeing. And that's why it says, who contrary to hope, it was against him. He in hope believed. <laughs> he believed in what you shouldn't be able to expect, but he was expecting it because what God had said. So God painted a picture to him of what would happen. And it had to contradict everything. Abraham wasn't a stupid person by any means. Had to contradict all of his common sense, all of what had happened to every other barren woman he knew. But yet it says he believed, contrary to that, God's promise. And the only way that's going to happen is supernatural. Turn to one last place, if you would, Acts 27. We'll see another case here where there was no hope and God gave a promise. It's not an unfamiliar section, but I think we'll read it. So in Acts 27, beginning in verse 13, it says this. They're out in a ship going to Rome, Paul is, and it says when the south wind, 2713 of Acts, the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire. Putting out to sea, they sailed close to Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Arachlodon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clada, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, what happened? All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Sounds like Abraham, doesn't it? Verse 21, but after long abstinence from food, when Paul stood in the midst of them and he said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 
And Paul says in verse 25, therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. Now, isn't that what Abraham did? Isn't that the same thing Paul's doing there? He's saying all hope was gone. There's no natural reason to believe anybody's going to be saved. But he says, take heart. I'm telling you, I believe God. It will be just as it was told me. And it was. That ship was broken up. Some of them had to float in on pieces of, of wood. But God's word became true. It was true as soon as it was spoken. And that's the way it works. Trusted in the faithfulness of God when all hope was gone. So what circumstances are you facing today that seem to contradict any hope or expectation of what God has promised, of a good outcome? I mean, it could be a loved one in the grip of Satan that it seems like they will never be delivered. I've been praying, nothing has happened. Isn't that it? And all hope seems to be gone or fading quickly if it's not gone. You just need the bare word of the promise of God is all you need. Or a trial that lingers in serious it screams at you to be sensible. Like I said, it had to be happening to Abraham. Come on, man. Or financial straits that are overwhelming. Like Israel, we talked last week when they were under siege. And maybe you're tempted to be like that officer that says, look, if the Lord made windows in heaven, could this thing be? He said, there's no way this could happen. He'd given up hope. And yet God had given a word. And man, that wasn't, that's not a good thing to doubt when God's giving you a word, right? You just need to hang in there because he got trampled on because he wouldn't believe what God had said. And we can trust what God has said. It doesn't matter. We've heard this, what the circumstances say. Relationship problems that seem impossible, no hope of reconciliation. God can reconcile things. He can in ways we would never figure out ourselves. So every situation, whatever it is you're looking at that seems hopeless, you can be given hope. And here's the thing. Do we look like Brother Hampton used to say, someone comes for counseling. Woe is me. He says, you need to come back here with three promises that pertain to your situation. Are we doing that? Are we looking at these are the promises God has given us, these exceeding great and precious promises? Are we using those promises to get through life? Grabbing hold of our inheritance to deal with our situations or are we just bemoaning the fact that things aren't going well? We got to fight. We got to exercise our faith, don't we? Make sure our heart's right with him. Find that promise that meets your need. Go before the Lord. Get your heart right with him and ask him to fulfill that promise in your life or situation. Make sure your relationship's right with him and you'll find he's faithful. First John 5 says this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Here's my summary statement of today. If we'll seek the Lord, because he says, if you seek me, you'll find me. He says, if you draw nigh to me, I'll draw nigh to you. If we seek the Lord and our lives are consecrated to him, he will work the faith in us. It will be there that will enable us to believe his promises. And we can trust his bare word despite what the circumstances say. Because the circumstances, you know what they do? They always deny the supernatural power of God. They always deny that that's going to happen. That's what they're telling you. But we have to press on to trust the living God. And that's where our hope lies, in his promise, his truth, his love, and in his power. Amen? 
because God, Brother Terry said, God is faithful. And as Brother Greg said the other night, that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must first what? Has to believe that he is, has to have a knowledge of him, has to know who he is, and that he is a rewarder, not going to let you down, a rewarder of them who seek him. You've got to be seeking him for the promises to work. But if you do, that's, that's what he says, Hebrews eleven six. It's simple, but it's not simple. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for all these exceeding precious promises, this inheritance, Father, that you've graciously given us and also the faith that you've given us. Lord, I ask you will help us to, to wake up, Lord, and be willing to exercise that faith that you've given us in the promises that you've given us, that we can see your faithfulness. I ask, Lord, that for all of us, you'll open our eyes to have a knowledge of you. You'll give us that revelation that we can see you for who you are. Then we can be like Moses. It says he endured because he saw him who was invisible. So I ask you'll give us that revelation of you, Lord, and your power and your love and your willingness to bless us. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.